Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. Thank you so much once again for lending us your ears and the only non-renewable resource that you've got. That's your time. Wherever you are, I know that you could be doing lots of things. So I'm so grateful that you've chosen to lean in to this episode And thanks for giving us a chance to earn your attention. Today's entrepreneur, I promise, is going to give you a return on this time investment as he is very clearly focused on returning value to not just investors, but to the solar industry. I've been looking forward to interviewing Mr. Matt Pateri, the CEO of Sunlight Financial, for quite some time. We're going to dig into how his 25 years in finance and leadership roles at uh, various banks and startups has helped him bring sunlight to number two position in the U.S. solar finance market, which itself is remarkable because sunlight is a relatively new entrant into the space and is doing pretty incredible things, as some of you may already be aware. If you like what you hear in today's episode, well, I would encourage you to not only subscribe to the show and whatever podcast player you're listening to, probably Spotify or iTunes, if I know most of you, that'll ensure that you don't miss out on our twice weekly content. You could also go to mysuncast.com where you can subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send out a reminder every time an episode just like this comes out. It's also where you can check out nearly 400 additional founder stories and startup advice. Thank you so much for tuning in. Now let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Warriors, we are going to have some fun today looking inside the shop that is providing massive value for many of the installers and indeed homeowners in the North America solar market. And that is a company called Sunlight Financial. Sunlight's CEO is also a member of the board of directors. And as I mentioned, has more than two decades in leadership roles in credit, biz dev and strategy from Fortune 50 companies to venture capital backed startups. One of those startups uh, has recently gone public, a name you'll recognize as Sunlight Financial. His time at Bank of America, where he was senior vice president and responsible for nearly $100 million in home equity portfolio, has informed uh, their approach and strategy to serving the U.S. solar market. Uh, he also started a company that uh, we'll get into called Swift financial and held senior roles in other financial institutions as well. Before we get into all of that, allow me to introduce you to today's guest, Matt Pateri. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks, Nico. I want to start by digging in a bit to your background. You had a really interesting upbringing. You're raised in the Northeast in New York, in fact, but can you give us a little bit of insight into kind of how you grew up and things about your childhood that perhaps informed your proclivity as an entrepreneur? So I grew up on Long Island in a little Bay Buckler Point. You may have heard of Blue Point Oysters, um, and that was effectively oh, yeah. the town I 
town I lived in, um, or Blue Point Beer for those that are uh, beer beer drinkers. Right, so my dad owned a gas station out in the Hamptons, um, and I used to pump gas throughout the summer from a <laughs> pretty young age, uh, ten or eleven years old. I was out there washing windows and picking weed, and just uh, you know staying busy over the over the summer. And then my mom was a teacher, and at the neighboring town, uh, she was a business teacher, um, and so I had a terrific kind of stereotypical middle-class uh, childhood um, and learned a lot about entrepreneurship from my, uh, from my parents, which is perhaps it sparked some of my interest. Sounds like you spent your summers in the Hamptons as well. <laughs> I did. I did. I liked it. I was always summering in the Hamptons at just, uh, I was pumping gas and cleaning windows. So not exactly what you might picture, but it was a, it was mm. a, a great childhood and I was super fortunate. Yeah, I too grew up in a family business. I'd love to know from your perspective if there are core, core pieces of who you uh, recognize as you know your adult self now that you credit to working in the family business. Talk to me a little bit about some of the cultural values of the upbringing that, in some way, have influenced how you've structured your life and business now. Yeah, you know it's it's interesting because when you know, some people see an owner of a business, they think of them as as the boss and the people who person who has the money and has all the control and all of the power. And growing up with my dad as a small business owner, you know, I can remember the the Saturday nights where we're about to go out and he gets a phone call and the guy who was supposed to work that Saturday night doesn't show up. But to show up, there's only one person who shows up and that's the owner. And when you're running a business or you you own a business, it's it's certainly not glamorous and certainly not how my dad wanted to spend his his occasional Saturday nights. Um, but that's what you that's what you do. Um, when things got tough in the early nineties, um, and there was a pretty tough recession. My dad got up early every day and he opened the gas station and he, and, and he opened it the first few hours so that he can offset some of his, some of his costs. Um, and it that type of grinded out that really taught me a lot. And, you know, it's a great thing to have ownership and flexibility, but sometimes you have even much less than you, than you might otherwise. Yeah. It's, I think that these days, uh, maybe as a percentage, but there are far fewer kids who work in the family business and, uh, you know, the ability one to see your parent sacrifice time with family, sacrifice uh, vacation time. It, it, I, I recall myself as a child thinking, gosh, this is, you know, it's really taking time away from my dad. I'd really like to hang out with him. But as an adult, I value, like you said, that, that grit, that hardiness that comes with recognizing there are, as a business owner, as a leader, there are sacrifices that do have to be made uh, to to ensure that not only you're optimizing for for cost and, and efficiency in the business, but also that you are caring for your family and your employees in meaningful ways that, that show that you are willing to roll up your sleeves and get the work done. Uh, I've heard from others that that is very much the culture and the, and the, uh, the sentiment inside of uh, of Sunlight Financial as well. Can you tell me a little bit about the core values of Sunlight as as regards kind of how you view building the company? Yeah, and I often describe when you when you talk about core values, you know, every company will tell you and has the slogans on the wall that the customer is number one and they care about employees. Um, that kind of that kind of comes with the territory. Um, what I'm really proud of, we built a culture while not perfect. Um, we built a culture where we genuinely care about our team. We genuinely care about our partners and our community. Mm-hmm. And we often talk about building a hundred year company. And we talk about that because it makes us think about the impact that we're having over a much longer 
I mean, the legacy that we're building, it's an incredible gift to be able to, to build a company and build that foundation. Um, and sometimes when I think about that responsibility, I think about the generations of people who will come after us and look at how we behaved in the hard times and use that to help guide them in their hard times. And so, you know, when we were all going through COVID, you know, a year and a half ago during lockdowns, and it was stressful to, <laughs> it caused strain on literally every company in the world. Um, at the same time, it was definitely a shared experience. As we're going through that, we really turn to our values. You know, when you think about a hundred-year company, you know there'll be ten pandemics. You know there'll be uh, crisis. You know there'll be wars. You know there'll be be these big events. But you have to look through them. Um, and so, really, our values really do drive how um, the relationships we're building and and how we operate the company. You know, Matt, one of the things that I am uh, equally impressed about from a career perspective is. Some of the things that you've done from an entrepreneurial perspective are rather traditional. You have started a business before that's very similar in sort of in structure and certainly in the financing space that informs how you how you hold space as a CEO. But what perhaps as you reflect back on your career path for you represents key milestones that now as a CEO you can think, oh, I'm really glad I had that, that opportunity and that experience because it helps me now stand in the position of you know, team leader and CEO and, and servant leader. You know, I, I may not have early in my career considered myself a traditional entrepreneur, but as I look back over my, really over my life, um, I see these, uh, these events that kind of highlight that I always had the spirit. So I'll give you an example, Nico. When I was very young, probably, I don't know, four or five, six years old, I used to take my parents' fruit out of the refrigerator and go door to door selling it to the neighbors. <laughs> now, what? it's not a normal activity for a five-year-old, um, so that I That's that I first. definitely appreciate. But I, you know, look, my overhead was very low, and I had no. Hope. So it was a great, it was a great business. And who can't buy a, an, you know, a, a, an apple for a nickel uh, from a from a five-year-old? Yeah. But I had this kind of entrepreneurial spirit. Even in college, I remember. You know, after after my first year of college, thinking about uh, freshman move-in day and the business opportunity there, which was you know, all these kids are moving into their dorm, and and two things are true: they all want something. To say, look, I'm a part of something new, and all of their parents just gave them you know twenty bucks and are feeling incredibly guilty. And so I went door to door selling T-shirts, um, and that's how I spent the first week of uh, as freshmen were moving in, and I walked through probably and met almost every, you know, the 4,000 freshmen at the University of Delaware. Um, while my friends were all partying and thinking about uh, and talking about the incredible summers they had. And uh, it was, and again, it just, it was kind of a natural thing for me to do. It didn't really think about it, but I look back on that now and it, it's definitely entrepreneurial. It's definitely scrappy and that we are at, a, at, at sunlight. And I think that kind of informed and kind of helped build the foundation for, for who we are and what I am. Do you remember the moment where uh, you're kind of trucking along senior vice president at, at certain at some point, I think back 2006, um, maybe it was after that uh, when you were in the entrepreneurial realm. <clears throat> but do you remember when you first had an exposure to the idea that this this thing called alternative energy, solar energy, renewable power was becoming a thing and that you had some of the tools that would help accelerate that that movement? Yeah, it's interesting. Years before I joined Sunlight, mm. I was a lender and through the financial crisis, 
it was clear that that business was going to go through some hard challenges. And so I was starting to think about if that business didn't make it through, you know, what would I want to do next? And I, uh, I was brainstorming with a, with a group of guys. And one of them said, hey, I know somebody who's putting solar on, on people's roofs and there's an opportunity to finance this. And it struck me as, wow, what an incredible way for the market to accelerate a really important social and this is probably 2009. So it was a little, it was a little early. The opportunity didn't present itself to, to take that anywhere. But a few years later, I met, uh, met a couple of founders of, uh, of Sunlight in, in 2014 and was able to kind of put that idea to work. So it was interesting. It, it, it planted, a, planted a seed for me. Well, one of the other things as I look back over uh, the work that helped you become the man that you are today, uh, I know that you had this brief tenure in entrepreneurial terms, which are dog gears, must've felt like an eternity, but you left Bank of America and you did this thing called Swift Financial. And, and as you pointed out, it was right in the middle of the financial crisis. So I gotta ask, uh, help me understand at a time where we had what is now known as the global financial meltdown economics, economics wise, how you decided to depart from Bank of America, take on this, this venture called Swift and, and what that meant for your career? Well, I was at MBNA, which was an incredible company. In 2005, MBNA got acquired by Bank of America. And then a year later, um, I had the opportunity uh, to join a team that was founding uh, Swift, which was a small business lender. So I joined mm. in, uh, in 2006. So, so we, had a, we had a good year or so incredible growth. Everything was perfect except ultimate. And we ran headlong into the, into the financial crisis. The lessons I learned there, I would not trade for anything. Um, and one of the things I'm, I'm proud of is that we were able to keep the company afloat. Uh, lots of other companies who started around that, that same time didn't make it. And, and we kept the company alive. Um, I ended up leaving in 2010. I got recruited to go back to Bank of America but a few of the, the folks who stayed on and, and some others who joined ultimately sold the business to PayPal. So I was happy to see wow. investors were able to get a, a decent return. Yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely, the highs were high and the lows were low. That is for, uh, that is for sure. I'm gonna ask about a specific moment when the lows were low. Uh, I recall in a previous conversation, you and I talked a bit about some of the hard times at Swift and what they taught you about sort of the grit necessary for, fun, for uh, you know, building a company. Can you talk to me about 2007 uh, and the you know the ups and downs natural uh, naturally occurring in a startup from a cash flow perspective and perhaps how that informs now like your your stick itiveness perhaps or or your ability to pull yourself up from bootstraps? Yeah, in two that so 2007 we were growing incredibly well. The business was doing was doing great. At the end of the year, you know, the market got decidedly more more challenging. And so by call it the middle of 2008, the business was, was really struggling and we were running low on cash. So we went from a, a period when you know, we could find funding and there was a lot of support for our business to you know, 2008. You know, I remember we, we called a bank and we warehouse line um, and we called and we were asking about warehouse pitching us all the prior year. And we called and, and we said, hey, we need, you know, we're interested in a warehouse. And they said, yeah, we're not doing warehouses right now. And we said, oh, you're not, you need to, you need to be, you know, an existing client. And they said, no, we're not doing them at all. And we said, you need to just have a lot of history. And they said, we're not doing them at all for no one. So they yeah. certainly weren't doing it for this, uh, you know, two-year-old or three-year-old startup. This gives you a sense for how tight capital was. Um, and then on the personal in 2008, 
my wife and I, my wife was pregnant with our, our second child. Um, when she was about 21 weeks, they put her in the hospital on bed rest. Oh, wow. So we had a, uh, we had a four-year-old at the time or a three-year-old, um, almost four. And, uh, and my wife is in the hospital. And so while we're working through these challenges, uh, with, uh, with Swift, uh, every morning I drop my daughter off at school, I would go to work, I would pick her back up. I'd go to the hospital. We'd see my wife and we'd go home. And that morning commute was about an hour and a half each direction. So, it was, you know, on top of a really stressful uh, professional time. It was an incredibly stressful business time. I'm sorry, personal time. You know, what was what was also interesting is uh, my wife's due date was uh, January 4th, and so all I wanted in the world was to make it to January, where my son could be born full term. And as we did the cash flow projections for Swift, we ran out of all of our cash on January 11th. So on one hand, I just could not wait for the clock to move forward. On the other hand, you know, wow, when the clock moves forward to that date, I'm going to have a, a newborn, a, a, you know, a second child, a newborn, and I'm probably going to be out of work in the worst recession we've seen since. since. Um, so it was, uh, it was certainly, uh, it was, a, it was a, I learned a lot from it. Um, one of those incredible experiences and you hope to, you hope to never have to repeat. Thanks for sharing that story. Uh, we don't need to get necessarily into the the ins and outs of how Swift works, but it was developed uh, around a proprietary credit strategy. You know, one of the things that this struggled the most with is the ability to uh, develop credit strategies that are inclusive, not exclusive, right? Not FICO scores of 780 or higher. Uh, it's one of the things that some of your peers have done really well. I'd love to know from your perspective how the experience with Swift later served the vision of how to grow sunlight and how to um, you know, reach some of the scale that you've achieved now. Well, I learned a lot at Swift that really informed how I, how I think about uh, providing credit today at, 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 at sunlight, you know, credit cycles uh, will absolutely happen. It's a natural part of, of what we do getting the credit quality through a credit cycle so one of the things that we were able to do at Swift, while times became really, really difficult, because we were thoughtful around credit, while our credit performance was was much wider than we would have liked, relative to others in the market, we still ended up in a really strong position. And so that allowed us to stay afloat. That allowed us to get through, albeit really challenging. It allowed us to get through that cycle, ultimately position Swift to exit yeah. in, I believe it was 2013. And so when I think about, about Sunlight, Again, ultimately, we're in the business of originating high-quality assets with good risk-adjusted returns. Um, and so the tendency to think you know, more is always better. Um, and what's important and what's important for the community, what's important for lenders, and what's important for long-term sustainability, very reasoned to be very thoughtful to, to price low appropriately so that you can support the rapid growth in the market, uh, but also do it in a way that we can be stable. Nothing will matter if sunlight can't continue to fund our partners um, in a stable way, like we've done. And so we've had tremendous growth over the past years. Um, but what I'm, what I'm really proud of is we've had that growth and we have the industry's best credit quality and we've developed funding sources and that provides long-term value partners who may not always fully appreciate it when times are really, really right now, it's a low interest rate environment, um, but I think they'll absolutely appreciate it when when ultimately the market turns and and it and it will one day. Before we get 
deep into kind of the fundamentals of how the the solar you know pre- predominantly residential solar finance market is is growing uh, i'm going to take a slight detour and ask what career path did you not go down but maybe always thought that you would so i always thought i would be either a lawyer or i'd do something in law enforcement i uh, the FBI. In fact, I, when I went to school, I studied criminal justice because I, I thought that's what I was, I was going to do. I ended up uh, getting a job at MBNA in my year by pure luck. Uh, my roommate and I was out of money. And when I say out of money, I mean, bought a big bag of chicken cutlets and, uh, and some spaghetti from the grocery store. And that needed to last yeah. the last two weeks of, uh, of the semester. And I needed a job. And I, I applied at, uh, at Bennigan's which is no longer around, but I applied at Bennigan's and they couldn't start until January 15th. And uh, the MBNA telemarketing job started January 5th. And uh, so I, I took it and loved history. Hey, want to protect your margins and get projects over the line fast? Look, we all know solar development teams waste millions of dollars every year on inefficient development. We both know that the old school methods of engaging with stakeholders, collaborating on documents, and even pitching investors is literally starving you of the one thing that you won't get back, time. You need greater velocity in your deals that only comes from tried and true duplicatable processes so your margins aren't constantly under attack. And in an increasingly competitive marketplace where even big oils getting in on the green gold rush the right software will help keep your team focused and in control of what really matters. Lucky for you, Anyan Project Manager is purpose-built software made for developers by developers. Sign up for free now and start moving faster with software made just for you. Go to anyan.co and see what Anyan Project Manager can do for you. That's en. I-A-N dot C-O. One last thing before we get back to today's episode. I wanted to let you know about an opportunity that just might be perfect timing for you. You might already know that I do coaching for entrepreneurs, founders, executives, and increasingly folks who are in a major transition in their life or career. And I find that fourth quarter is often couched as a do or die time of year. My clients usually really benefit from having a strategic advisor as an ally for not just wrapping the year well, but knowing that you've got a solid plan for the incoming year. Now, I only open up spots for coaching a few times a year, as many of you know, and I keep the roster pretty small, but I've decided that I'd like to open up a few more spots through the end of this year. So for the next couple of weeks, I'll be accepting applications to fill two spots that I have available. If that sounds interesting to you, I'd encourage you to go to mysuncast.com, click on work with Nico up in the menu, fill out the brief application and book a 15 minute clarity call with me. I'll only be accepting a couple of people this quarter and I'm closing this offer in a few weeks so we can focus on your Q4 and Q1 plan. So if you've ever considered hiring a coach, maybe now is the right time to take the next step. I look forward to hearing from you soon, Solar Warriors. Now back to today's episode. You know, Matt, I remember that Hudson had a relatively small team, certainly compared to what you all have now. Uh, when you took over as CEO and 
started building out this Charlotte office. Where did you identify opportunities around building a team? How did you think about that? The first few critical people to get on the bus, so to speak? Well, first, and it's always the most important screen is people who fit the culture and who are really going to drive the culture forward. And so having all the talent in the world and not lining up to, to the culture would have been a recipe for disaster. And so that was, the, that was the single most important thing. Now, people who just believe in the culture and who can't execute and deliver, you know, they're not going to drive, drive long-term value. And so it's really making sure we have massive amounts of both of them. And I was um, incredibly fortunate. So there were five people at, at Sunlight before me. I joined as the sixth. Um, and it was really early days when I joined. We were doing like a million dollars a month in in loans, so it was it was really early. Um, and then I was able to hire some other folks, um, some of whom I would worked with before in the past, um, to help get the company you know, kind of moving a little bit faster and uh, and help us establish that initial culture. So it's very common that you'll see an executive step into a team and hire folks they've worked with in the past. I have to assume, based on my experience and just generally reading a, a fair amount about this, that the decision to do that is like, who do I already trust and know that I can work with? Cause we got to move fast. Are there other criteria that go into that decision to hire folks you've worked with in the past versus building out a fresh team? That's definitely it. I mean, that, that is definitely part of it. Is this someone that I can trust who can, who can execute autonomously uh, is really is really important, and especially for a young company that that's trying to scale, you need someone who can do the work. Um, you know, can open the laptop and target and uh, and do the work, but they can also think more broadly and more strategically about what are the implications of the things that I'm decisions I'm making today, and what will it mean to us in six months or twelve months or eighteen months? And that's really really hard. And so often having a connection to someone makes it a little bit easier because every you know if you're a team of five. And you hire one more person, you know, you you massively change the dynamics of your team literally overnight. Um, so that's important. But that said, we also hired a number of people that I'd never worked with before, who we were really thoughtful about and have made incredible impacts. And so, for instance, you know, Scott Malloy, our CIO, or Barry Edinburgh, our CFO, or Nora Dahlman, our GC, and people who really exemplify our values have played a huge role in helping to, to scale our business. And I, I never worked with them before. I didn't, didn't know them until I was introduced to them. But sometimes you just know, it just, it just clicks um, when you first meet someone. And that was the feeling I got with all, all three of them. Do you have any particular questions that for you are indicative of and a great filter for cultural fit? I always hear folks say, we hire for cultural fit. H- how do you actually get to an understanding of whether they're a cultural fit. Are there particular filters that you use? Yeah, I mean, I think what really matters is what is motivating people and what do they what do they really genuinely care about? And I also often ask questions to press to understand why people have moved from job to job, what their what their motivations really were, and not the initial answer they give you, because that's the practice and script one scripted one, but the two or three behind that you can you can really learn a lot by understanding people's people's motivations and and their fears and the decisions they've made i also i often will also ask for lots of examples so if somebody tells me um, that they're really analytical i'll ask a lot of questions around what do you mean by that and what are you proud of oh, and yeah. really dig in um, to under, to understand yeah that's a great example you know a, a lot of folks maybe don't understand how 
how similar or dissimilar the work of creating loans, which is the primary product uh, that you all do, is similar to or different from traditional banking. Could you unpack a little bit how the the landscape for financing solar as an asset for homeowners is similar or dissimilar from like your traditional banking background? And also what what does the landscape look like for products offered now and, and where is it going? Well, when I first joined uh, Sunlight, I was talking to someone about, about solar. You know, I heard what I've heard in every time I've started to lend in a new asset class, whether it was mortgage or, or auto or small business. And someone always pulls me to the side and says, listen, Matt, this is different than all of those other assets. You just, you know, you'll learn, but this is different. And what I've learned is there are real differences through all assets. And there's a lot that's really, really similar. And, um, you know, the core fundamentals of making sure assets are priced appropriately, being thoughtful about, about risk, um, understanding the, the purpose for why people are using credit and the ability for capital to drive real social good. All of those things are, all of those things are, are really important and they're, yeah. they're true across all asset classes. That's really cool. Thank you for pointing out those, syner- those synergies, uh, pricing, risk. I, I never thought about the question of the purpose of why people are using credit. I actually think that would be a fantastic signal to homeowners of, of, I want to say not vulnerability, but real like authenticity of a solar salesperson. If they can come at that, it sounds very empathic to be able to, in the sales process, try to understand through the, through the lens of how to apply the right product what is it that you hope to gain through using credit versus some other tool or instrument? Hmm, that's really cool. Thanks for that. You know, there, there's the purpose of, mm-hmm. of credit. And so that, that impacts the performance. Um, I also mean just more broadly, I think um, providing capital is a fundamental social good. And I think um, most you know, don't look at it that way. Um, you know, sometimes that's not a, a really popular view. Clearly, by providing capital in solar, we've helped 150,000 families go solar. And the more efficiently we can do it, the more customers we can get to go solar. And so, you know, that to some that may seem like an like like that's an obvious example. But I'm going to give you I'll give you an example from a, a prior life. You know, as a Bank of America, and I was leading home equity, and we used to talk about these are real customers and these are real families. Um, and sometimes, you know, it's abstract. People can't feel it. And then we had a woman who applied for a home equity loan. Her son needed a liver transplant. She didn't have the money to do it. And frontline loan officer found out that was the purpose. And we got that loan funded in three days or under three days. Now, normally it took like, you know, 40 days on average. And so I remember talking to the team about if you don't think what you do matters, think about the woman whose son now has a, a new liver because of what we were able to do. And we just don't often hear those stories because we're once removed or the ability for someone to own their home or the ability to have access to transportation. Used properly and responsibly, capital can really help improve people's lives, can really help um, you know, social causes, but irresponsibly, it can also have a lot of, a lot of negative uh, implications. So it's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, a lot of responsibility. You know, Speaking of responsibility, you have taken on uh, even more responsibility for the opportunity to grow exponentially in the last year. Congratulations. You all went through a successful, um, you know, capital funding program, uh, going public. What was the underlying thesis of why 
uh, why to take sunlight public and how does it give you access to the ability to help more people moving forward? Well, we always thought that going public was a logical exit for some of our private investors. You never really know, but it it seemed like a a logical exit for us. Um, And if you look at the team we built, we built the team to be ready to ultimately be a, a public company and to scale well beyond. And so we hired seasoned executives um, that you might not otherwise hire at the stages in which we hired them because we thought that was that was important. Um, you know, the opportunity presented itself within the, the last year. And um, you know, by being a public company, we get we certainly get a certain amount of credibility, we get access to capital um, and it should help us I- accelerate our accelerate our yeah. business. So it's a it's a it's a big step. But really, ultimately, it's just a milestone. It's a milestone for us. Um, but that's that's all it is. And ultimately, you know, our mission is not to be a public company. Our mission is to to have a real impact in the lives of our customers and our partners in the community. You mentioned that you made back, kind of back to the team decision. You made some key executive hires expecting and anticipating to go public. What are examples of that for folks that, who maybe are completely unaware of the difference between those two kinds of teams? Yeah. So I, you know, I give you you know give an example. You know, Barry Edinburgh, our, our CFO. You know, Barry joined um, about a year after I after I joined, so the business was still relatively small. Barry is a really seasoned executive, really understands the capital markets well, really understands our, our business well and the environment well. And at that stage, we probably could have hired someone who is more junior, uh, candidly a little bit less expensive, and couldn't have scaled in the same way. And you know, we decided, rightfully so. That in our business we want to hire the best that we could hire, um, and we've done that again and again and again. When you look at at, at other roles, it's that mindset, that mindset, knowing that we're we're building to something much bigger. Can you help us wrap uh, our heads around the scale and scope of what Sunlight is providing in the market? When you first started, you mentioned um, you know roughly a million dollars a month in loans. I have no concept really of how many projects that might have represented, but. Can we start with maybe the scope, the scale of how many families you've been able to support with financial products? Yeah. So today, over 150,000 families have gone solar thanks to the financing that we've provided, um, which is, you know, sometimes it, it's hard to, to wrap my head around uh, that we could fill two football stadiums with the number of families who have been positively impacted. So it's, uh, it's, it's really gratifying. That's amazing. And then if, can we put that in the perspective of monthly volume? Yeah, so that's um, you know we're we're funding today, call it two hundred million dollars um, of of loans a, a month. So yeah, up a lot from those uh, early days of a million dollars a million dollars a month. Two hundred x growth, I would say, is up a lot. That's a tremendous um, result for you know Hudson's thesis and uh, your early leadership team. Congratulations, that is a fantastic. You know, kind of that helps me. I mean, it, it is mind boggling for me to think that. Uh, just one of the leading you know, uh, industry financiers is writing over a billion dollars in asset products in, in a year. That is remarkable. Uh, I'd love to know with that in mind, uh, it seems like the core product there is a loan specifically, and there are various categories of different financial instruments, leases, et cetera. But Sunlight's particularly focused on loans. What opportunities do you see in the market right now in terms of serving homeowners with regard to sustainability uh, as a broad category, but helping them address 
energy poverty, energy access, clean energy on their rooftop? Yeah, so we started in solar and we always thought about Sunlight as a point of sale finance platform. So we started in solar. It's you know a great market. It's a fast growing market. But about a year and a half ago, we expanded into home improvement. And so home improvement is a market. It's a $400 billion market. About a third of it is energy efficiency related. So it's a it's a really large market with, with a significant opportunity. Um, and we're relatively early in penetrating that market. But, uh, but so far, so good. So we think there's a lot of opportunity there to help homeowners provide uh, or to provide capital for homeowners so that they can make energy efficient upgrades. Are you seeing that energy storage is now just becoming commonplace, sort of solar and storage is the is the product basket? It's interesting. It really depends. There are some of our partners who have near 100 uh, percent battery attach rates in on their uh, on their solar systems. Incredible. And we have other partners who are at zero. And uh, we think it's a it's a real opportunity for the for the market. You know, I used to joke that for the first four years of our business, we were always 18 months away from battery storage really taking off. And the next year, we were still only 18 months away. Today, it's it's taking off. If you look at you know across the industry, um, significant increases in the in the attach rate, um, real customer appetite for battery storage, um, and all the weather events that are really well publicized. Just you know, are just another reason for customers to want the stability of energy storage. So I can certainly assume that as a fin- financial institution, it is something that you want to try and foster, right? The ability to wrap larger sums of money into the products because it helps grow that bottom line, that two hundred a month that you are of assets that you're financing. How's the process been? So I have a twofold question: Has it been hard to help get? Uh, the lending community uh, aligned with diversifying that product into storage. Uh, And then maybe part B is I wonder if actually adding something like storage helps avoid some of the, the potential pitfalls down the line that just a solar client might run into. Yeah, I think, you know, the most important thing we think about adding in other other products or expanding what we'll finance is to really understand the, the, the customer's value proposition. Does it make good sense? Is this increasing the average ticket in a way that they're going to see value see value out of? Um, and that's that's important. You know, we often talk, I talk about, we have two sets of partnerships. We have partnerships with solar installers. Um, and those are pretty intuitive because those are the, you know, those are the, 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 the the way in which we access the, the market. But the other set of partners we have is our capital providers. And we think about both of them as partners. And we are very thoughtful around our capital providers to make sure they are getting good risk-adjusted returns. They're going to be comfortable with the credit performance. And it's going to perform well for them through credit cycles. And that's the mentality at which we we come at this. You know, Early on, I, I'll give an example. Early on, we had a capital provider come to us and say, hey, I want to loosen this piece of criteria. And what that would have done, it was would it increase the approval rate. Our, part, our contractor partners would have loved it, would have given us a little bit more volume, and it would have been terrible for them from a risk standpoint, you know, ter- terrible on a relative basis. And we told them not to do it. Um, we gave them the advice not to do it because it wasn't good for them in the long term. And what we cared about was the long term. You know, I now look back and to your question about, you know, what, how, what's their reaction when you bring battery storage or other opportunities to them? When you build trust and you're genuine and you really do care that they're successful, they come to appreciate it. Part of the reason we have a diverse network of capital providers is we can bring them different opportunities. We can innovate more rapidly, we think, than others in the market. 
Um, and it's all about trust. We're I mean, ultimately we're in the trust business. Well, to that point, I you know you mentioned that one of your key stakeholders are installers, broadly categorized up to now as solar installers. But as you mentioned, home improvement uh, amplifies your ability to help installers of all types of home products. How do you talk with your team about the the opportunity that Sunlight has to create impact for home improvement? Yeah. So, you know, I go back to you know, think about the positive benefits you're having on people's lives. So, you know, energy efficiency and being able to um, Im- improve their uh, uh, homeowners' energy consumption in their, in their footprint um, has got a clear societal benefit. Uh, but there's also quality of, quality of life. If someone who's, uh, whose air conditioning is out and needs to finance that so that they can have air conditioning, you know, we're providing a, spend a, spend a summer in Charlotte uh, with me and uh, don't have air conditioning. You pretty quickly realize these are, these are comforts that we've come to expect. But for, for some people, they don't have access to the capital. Or if they did, they would lose their reserve fund and they'd have, they'd have other challenges. And so by, by providing capital for people in a responsible way, we can make a positive impact. You know, capital is sort of the, uh, the, the lubricant for our economy. And so used appropriately, it, it lets the economy churn along, it helps people be employed, um, and it helps, helps people have a higher standard of living. A lot of what you are engaged in is a regulated market, uh, which implies that policy can be for or against uh, the growth of a sector. Is there anything that you're keeping a close eye on from a regulatory perspective uh, could be regional, could be national, that perhaps others listening should be aware of or that might inform how you guys uh, sort of move in the market? So from a regulatory standpoint, the golden rule is to start with do what's right. Um, we don't start by reading the regulation and say, all right, what's the absolute maximum we can do to walk up to this line? We start off and say, what's the right thing to do? And if you do the right thing, genuinely do the right thing, 99% of the time, you're covered. You have to make sure that there's not a regulation that you didn't appreciate or a different perspective. Um, but that's the way in which we approach things. You know, I've seen time and time again, um, if an industry doesn't regulate itself, someone else will come in and regulate it. And it's it's usually not in as, as thoughtful a way as you would otherwise hope. And so you know, we're really thoughtful about making sure customers are getting, you know, really understand what they're getting from a from a solar standpoint that we're financing it in a responsible way. Um, we're, help, we're helping to provide reasonable protections. Um, and that's not to say that others in the market aren't doing that, but we're, we're, you know, we're, we're really thoughtful about that. I'd like to sound really smart, like I'm a policy analyst and I know exactly what I'm talking about here, but I, I was having a recent conversation with someone. I don't remember what the specific policy is surrounding it, but they, they suggested that there is, that there's policy being produced, being, um, presented that in some way could make the market more advantageous for leasing or PPA products as opposed to the loan product that Sunlight and Mosaic and many others offer. How do you think about the constraints that might put on you and how nimble is Sunlight to be able to offer different products? Yeah. So first I would say um, to the extent in which a lease or a PPA makes more sense for a customer, then that's what they should use. That's, you know, that's terrific. It's allowing more customers to go solar. That's good for the environment. That's good for the, for the, for the solar ecosystem and the industry. Um, so that's, that's terrific. We've always had a view. I've always had a view that if you own your home and homeowners tell us this, 
they own their home, they probably want to own what's bolted to the roof. And overwhelmingly, customers are choosing loans over leases. You know, when Sunlight was founded a few years ago, loans were probably something like 15 to 20% of the market. Today, two thirds of the market are loans over leases and customers choose to own their system. And so, you know, policies will come and go. I don't know that I can I can see through to anything that would clearly change that mix. But ultimately, you know, there's a segment of customers where lease might make more sense and that's what they should that's what they should go do. How do you as an entity that serves direct to consumer but vis-a-vis you you have you have like the consumer who's your customer at the end of the day, but then you have your channel partner that is an installer. How do you think about lead generation and customer advocacy or consumer advocacy within the overall spectrum of how sunlight grows? Right. You know, so we're a B2B to C business. So we partner with uh, solar installers and home improvement contractors, and then they introduce us to the customer at the point of sale. So our first line of customer is, is the installer or the, or the contractor. Um, that said, we think it's really important that customers are getting good value. And so when a partner applies um, to, to be one of our, when a solar installers or a home improvement contractor applies to be one of our partners, we you know, will underwrite them both from a financial standpoint, but also from a compliance and a risk standpoint, and uh, make sure they do high quality work. And then we've got ongoing monitoring uh, to to make sure and you know, to really make sure that that customers are are getting a good deal and that it makes sense for them. Do you engage in any pull through strategy of? generating consumer awareness about sunlight, especially now as you think about being a public company? Our focus is always on our partners' brands. And so we don't, you know, we don't need to sit in front of in front of our partners' brands. We let their brand lead the way with uh, with customers and we're there to support them. Uh, you know, we we try to be a pretty low ego company. You don't you, know, you don't see us sponsoring and throwing and splashing our logo around. Um, that's not we don't really think that has a tremendous impact on us from a from a business standpoint and we'd much rather put our investments and our efforts behind our partners rather than trying to get in front of them yeah thank you for that i love that that perspective it's really interesting to contemplate that what that conversation must sound like as well as installers have to evaluate who the financing partners are that they're going to work with and and uh you know sunlight's not the only provider out there and at the end of the day like you said uh, it comes down to trust and being able to offer to your installers that their brand is customer facing, I think probably resonates with a large portion of the folks that you work with. Well, Matt, let me ask a few questions just generally around your, your background and influence from a leadership perspective. Are there any key mentors that you reflect on who really had an impact on you? I'm wondering if there are any key lessons or takeaways from those folks that have carried through in your career. Yeah. I I mean, I think maybe the most obvious uh, to start on my parents my parents are both incredibly hardworking, very community oriented. And while I may have found it a little annoying as a kid, <laughs> my, my parents used to say over and over, remember the golden rule, remember the golden rule. You know, as an adult and raising my own kids, I realized if there's nothing else you remember in life, the golden rule will, will treat you really well. And so, you know, much of the of who I am and 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 what we're trying to do here is really was instilled upon me by, by my by my parents. And then I've been really fortunate throughout my career to have incredible uh, mentors who I've worked with, who, who taught me the value of leadership, leading from the front, of uh, being humble, even small things. There was, um, you know, one of the, when I was in MBA and I was you know, first couple of weeks at, at that management development program, right out of college, I remember the division president, Jack Hughes, um, came up to me and everyone knew who Jack Hughes was. He came up to me 
And I saw him and he came over and he shook my hand and said, hi, I'm Jack. And of course I knew who Jack was. Everybody knew who Jack was. But Jack, rather than put me in a position that that would make me uncomfortable, he introduced himself and he opened himself up. Um, and he was just an, an incredible person, an incredible leader. And I've had so I've been so privileged to have so many of those types of leaders around me who really who, who taught me a lot about business, but more taught importantly taught me um, mm. about what what really matters. I can tell that you are someone who appreciates uh, genuine integrity based humility, and uh, that story is re- very indicative of someone who is willing in a clear position of leadership to lower themselves and say, I don't assume that you know anything about me, but I want to, I want a relationship with you. And I want you, I want you to know I'm approachable. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. Nico, there was, um, when I saw, I feel like I'm talking a lot about this management development program, but I was in the management development program and there was a really hard week. Um, and I had a boss, his name was Joe McDonough. And I, I don't think I've ever told this story at the end of the week. You know, we went around the room and everybody said, if you could be anywhere, where would you be? And people were like, I'd be on a beach, I'd be in Europe, I'd be in all these incredible places. And Joe said, I'll be at Disney World with my kids. And I remember a few people said, come on, Joe, you can be anywhere. And he said, there's nowhere I'd rather be than with my kids. My kids are like everything to me. And I remember there were a couple of examples where Joe made some hard decisions where he chose to be with family over some some professional oppor- you know, some professional opportunities. I mean, he was an incredible manager and an incredible leader. And he used those as examples for us to prioritize what's important in your life and the things that really matter. In 2007, Joe's son, Andrew, died of leukemia. And uh, I couldn't help but think back to the lesson that he taught me. Um, and not too long ago, I emailed him and said, you know, You've made an incredible difference in how I think about things and the way that, you know, his, um, his ability to, to, to really prioritize what's important. And so, you know, lots of, lots of incredible leaders, but, you know, just a great example of of someone who's made a real difference in my life. Yeah. That's a really touching story. Uh, it resonates very deeply with me. Thank you. Well, if you want to, uh, <laughs> not to plug Joe, but uh, <laughs> if you if you want to, he's uh, he's since created a nonprofit called the Be Positive uh, Foundation, and uh, they help support uh, pediatric research and um, pediatric cancer research. And uh, he's 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 taken a tragedy and made a difference in in many many lives. So a remarkable person and an incredible organization for uh, for anyone who's who's interested in supporting it. Can you tell me something that is true for you that very few people agree with you on? Um, I think the world is getting is better than it's ever been and just getting better and better. In a world with a 24-hour news cycle where we see all the problems, um, and I don't deny those problems. There's a lot of work we have to do. Uh, we are better off than we've ever been. Life expectancy is up. We have access to health care that we've never had before. Um, even if you look at crime, crime today is a lot lower than it was even in, even in the 90s. And uh, I can't imagine a time I'd rather live in than today. And again, that's not to say we don't have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do, but we've made tremendous progress. I'm excited about the trajectory, even if we can't always appreciate how fortunate we are today. Hmm. What one book, if you were only allowed one, would you gift to your children? Wow. Um, So the one book that I gift more often than any other is a book called Untangled. Um, and it's a, it's a great book. Um, it's a great book. If you, uh, if you have a, a, if you have a daughter and it's about guiding your daughter through, 
transitions through her lifetime. So if <laughs> my kids have a daughter, that would uh, that would definitely be the book. And I, and I, I that is by far the book that I get more often um, than any other. It's a great great book. That's really cool. Uh, I've heard that actually that book being recommended before. I, I don't have daughters; I have three sons, but. Uh, that's a really great recommendation. Uh, before we sign off, I have two questions. So uh, where do you like to be found? How can folks engage with Matt Pateri? So they can uh, certainly on, on LinkedIn, they can engage with me there or, or always, of course, shoot me an email at matt.pateri at sunlightfinancial.com. I'm uh, not always as fast as I'd like to be on I'm responding to those, um, but I can, I can always be reached there for sure. Thank you for that. Well, as we wrap here, uh, let's end with a bold prediction, as you always do. What one thing do you, Matt Pateri, see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Yeah, I think two things are going to happen. One is solar is just going to become commonplace on people's roofs. Um, and you're not going to, today, it's a decision. It's not even going to be a decision. Everyone will ultimately go, um, will go solar. And secondly, I will also say, you know, that's the that's the really positive part of the prediction. The other side of it is, Solar has grown up in an incredibly benign credit environment with low interest rates. Um, and we're at the stage, the industry is at the stage that it's an adolescent. It feels like it's been around forever and knows everything, and it really hasn't seen the world yet. And it's going to get, it's going to get harder. Um, they're going to be, there's going to be a credit crisis. Things are going to get, things are going to get, we got a little taste of it last year um, with, with COVID. Um, but undoubtedly, that will change, and it's going to make it difficult for for companies to access capital. Um, and those that have been thoughtful about managing that and diversified their funding um, will do really well. And I think others will uh, will really struggle. And I'm not speaking only about finance companies; I mean across the uh, across the industry. Matt Pateri is CEO of Sunlight Financial. I am so glad to have had the honor to spend the last couple of hours with you, Matt. Thank you for leaning in and educating us here on Suncast. Thanks, Nico. It was fun. Thanks for having me. All right, Solar Warrior. Well, that is a wrap on today's episode, but the learning and lessons don't stop here. Uh, I want to say thank you in particular to Matt Pateri and his team, Phil Bregman, and the folks that helped make this possible. Thank you so much for agreeing and the scheduling. It's not always easy, especially to get a publicly traded CEO on the show. So I'm grateful. Thank you for listening through all the way to the end. You are the reason that we are here today. If you're eager to keep learning, well, you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion, along with the social media links for Matt and all of our past guests, the book recommendations for Untangled and hundreds of other books in past episodes over on the show notes page at mysuncast.com. I hope that you will take some time to jump over there. And since you're going to be online, I'd like to ask you to do two very specific things. The first is please subscribe to our newsletter. That's the easiest way for you to know what's coming up in the Suncast feed as well as our events like our great debate series and where we're going to be in the world, like our time in New Orleans at the uh, Solar Power International and other events that are coming through the end of this year and beginning of next. So join the newsletter. I, I try not to overwhelm. Uh, generally, just try to give insight into what's happening in the world of Suncast. The other ask I have of you, if you're going to be on LinkedIn, uh, as I can promise and, and confirm, Matt does in fact respond to LinkedIn messages. So I know you're going to jump over there and connect 
with him, which you'll find his LinkedIn uh, at that show notes page. Since you're gonna be on LinkedIn, would you find the post that we've made of this episode and, and absent that, if you don't have time, just drop a quick post thanking Matt for joining joining me on Suncast and and leave one nugget that you are taking away from this episode. I learned so much from Matt and I'm grateful for his mentorship vis-a-vis this conversation today. Hope you'll join us next week as we'll have two more episodes of Tactical Tuesday, got it designed to guide you in practical ways. And then these long form Thursdays, which help give you insight into how the industry is in fact being built this clean energy revolution that we're all a part of. I'd like to thank once again, our sponsors who help make this content free to you. You can find out more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. And that's also where you can learn more about how you could partner with the thousands of solar warriors and climate champions that tune in every week as you have done. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.